0: This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.
1: Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 13th, 2015, I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have Emily Conover up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Sean Wojcik about the relationship between political ideology and happiness. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. As the Science Society now we have Emily Conover, Sciences News intern. she's here to talk about some recent online stories i 'm Suzanne Bard. Our first story takes us below ground, where highly organized societies with populations in the trillions conduct their business. We're talking about ant colonies, of course. Most colonies have a single queen, so the diverse array of workers are closely related sisters. Researchers have long puzzled over how these genetically similar sisters become so specialized into different roles. Some researchers suspected epigenetics plays a role and tested this in carpenter ants. What did they do, Emily? Well, they
2: studied uh, Florida carpenter ants in which workers split into two groups. One type minor workers are smaller than six millimeters, and they tend to the young, and they forage for food. And the other type are called major workers, and those can be twice the size of the minor workers, and they protect the colony. So since these ants are so genetically similar, the researchers thought that environmental factors must cause the differences between the two groups. They suspected that DNA methylation was behind the size differences, DNA methylation adds a chemical to DNA, which turns genes off. This has been seen in bees, for example, where DNA methylation can turn larvae into queens. So they thought it might be important for ants, too. To test this, they gave the ants compounds to increase or decrease DNA methylation. Decreased methylation led to more larger ants, and increased methylation produced more small ants.
1: Okay, and the researchers then wanted to find out which genes were involved. And here it seems like the picture got a little bit more complicated.
2: Right, so to nail down which genes were important in the ant's size, they measured the activity of several genes that control growth. They found one gene in particular called the Epidermal Growth Factor Receptor, or EGFR, increased activity in smaller ants. When they blocked this gene with a drug, they produced larger ants. So one complication was that when methylation was increased throughout the genome, it actually decreased the methylation of EGFR leading to smaller ants. The researchers hypothesized that methylation overall determines the level of activity of genes that control EGFR's methylation.
1: Interesting. And it's one thing to experimentally manipulate the ant's size, but do the researchers actually know if DNA methylation actually changes the workers' behavior, turning some ants into nurturers and others into colony defenders? No,
2: the study didn't test that, but that's the next step in the research. They would like to know if methylation can also explain these differences in behavior that they see. It'll be interesting to
1: see where this research leads. Our next story takes us from subterranean ant colonies to the canyon, Canyons of Mars. The Red Planet's canyons are billions of years old. Many scientists have assumed they were primarily carved out by water, but some now think that wind may have played a role as well. Scientists attempting to figure this out are looking to some of Earth's canyons for clues. Where are they looking, Emily? The
2: geologists found what they call a natural experiment made up of 36 canyons in Chile. Half of the canyons were exposed to strong wind, and half of them were shielded by a mountain. But otherwise, the canyons were very similar. Okay, so they compared windswept canyons to sheltered canyons, and what did they find? Well, Suzanne, they found that the windy canyons were longer and smoother than the calm canyons. And the windy canyons had grown ten times faster than the still ones, meaning that the effect of wind was actually more important than water in determining their shape. The windy canyons looked like long gouges in the earth, and the still canyons were stubby and rounded, indicating that the wind had sandblasted the windy canyons until they were smooth and long.
1: Well, so it sounds like being shielded by a mountain really makes a huge difference. Now, do they have reason to believe that a similar pattern might be found on Mars?
2: Yeah, so there are actually similarities and differences. The area where the canyons are located is very windy and very dry, So it's similar to conditions on Mars. Of course, Mars has very different gravity, atmosphere, and rocks. So it's not clear that the results would translate exactly to Mars.
1: And how does this study question previous assumptions about how Martian canyons were formed, Emily? Right. So if the wind
2: has been modifying Martian canyons over the billions of years since water last flowed there, they could have been shaped just as much by the wind as by the water. And scientists use these river canyons to make estimates of how much water once flowed on Mars. And they generally assume that water was the dominant force that caused them. If this assumption is wrong, they could be overestimating the
1: amount of water on Mars. In our final story today, scientists have developed an imaging technique that shows the AIDS virus replicating in real time in rhesus macaques. In monkeys, the virus is called simian immunodeficiency virus, or SIV, which is closely related to HIV. This sounds like a real breakthrough,
2: Emily. Yeah, so what the researchers did is they attached a radioactive molecule to an antibody that targets SIV. They then gave this antibody to 12 infected monkeys and used a positron emission tomography scan to detect the location of the antibodies attaching to the virus. So researchers could then visualize where the virus was located in the body. From previous research, they expected to find it in the gut and lymph nodes. And they did, but they also saw the virus in the monkey's nasal passages, lungs, and male genital tracts. These are parts of the body that haven't been getting as much attention in AIDS research until now, so it might highlight some new areas to focus on.
1: That's really interesting. And then the researchers gave the monkeys antiretroviral drugs? Yes, they gave
2: antiretroviral drugs to three of the monkeys, and then they repeated the scan weeks later. They were able to see that there were still some traces of the virus replicating in the monkeys, even though it was indetectable in their blood. So there's some evidence that antiretroviral drugs can't reach certain parts of the body, which might leave places where the virus can hide out. So this method could allow scientists to pinpoint where this is happening to help develop ways to deliver the drugs to those areas.
1: Okay, so what's in store for the future of this imaging
2: technique, Emily? Well, the technique still needs a little more work to resolve some unanswered questions. So, for instance, do the signals in the scan really match the viral levels in the body? But it promises to be useful in drug research, in vaccine development, and in
1: working towards a cure for HIV. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Emily?
2: Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about fossils of seven-foot-long prehistoric filter-feeding sea creatures. Also, a story about wireless deep brain stimulation using heat and magnets. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story on the Next MacGyver competition searching for a star engineer to remake the 1980s TV show, but this time she's a woman. Also, coverage of the Islamic State's attacks on ancient sites in Iraq. So be sure to check out all of these stories on the site.
1: Emily Conover is Science's news intern. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencebag.org. Next, Past studies that have attempted to compare happiness and life satisfaction in conservatives and liberals have depended on self-report measures. Sean Wojcik discusses the limitations of such measures and why behavioral indicators can give us a more complete picture of happiness.
3: We were really interested in happiness differences observed between liberals and conservatives. There's a lot of research showing that conservatives report greater happiness and satisfaction with life than liberals do. However, all of this research is based on self-report measures. And happiness is an inherently subjective experience. How do you know if someone is really happy? The thing is, there's not an established accuracy criterion. So when we ask people how happy they are, there's really no way to know if they're being completely honest or if they might be assessing themselves in a way that's a little bit more flattering than their actual emotional experiences might warrant. So the challenge that we focused on in this research is the reliance on self-report and happiness research. And self-reports are the cornerstone of research on happiness or subjective well-being. But one concern we were particularly interested in is that research investigating self-report-based differences in happiness between non-randomized groups could inadvertently capture differences in self-reporting styles rather than actual differences in emotional experience.
1: And why should we even try to quantify happiness, Sean?
3: Happiness is an extremely valuable human experience. Aristotle referred to happiness as a supreme good. It's this ultimate human experience, the desired end to all means. The real reason Aristotle would say that we want anything else, money, material goods, relationships, is because we think they'll make us happy. And so once happiness is attained, all our other desires disappear. But this isn't just ancient Greek philosophy. Happiness is one of the most important human experiences today. And happiness is related to career success, higher income levels, improved social relationships mental and physical health, and even longevity. So, it's really important, given how much value we place on happiness, to understand its causes and consequences. A number of psychologists, economists, public opinion researchers have recently been advocating for a national index of post-national happiness, even arguing that it's this moral imperative to promote policies that enhance people's happiness. It's really important if we're going to do that to make sure that we're measuring happiness accurately.
1: And what have previous studies reported regarding the relationship between happiness and political persuasion, Sean?
3: There have been a number of studies looking at the relationship between political ideology and subjective well-being. And they've generally found that conservatives report greater happiness and satisfaction with life than liberals. It's a relatively small difference, but it is fairly reliable.
1: Now, what are some reasons conservatives might report greater happiness than liberals?
3: There have been a number of reasons that researchers have come up with to explain this happiness gap. Some have argued that conservatism offers this palliative function of justifying troubling social inequalities. Others have attributed the differences to personality or to conservatives' greater optimism, their sense of control, their moral beliefs and values, but all of these rely on self-report measures. And central to our research was investigating the possibility that liberals and conservatives engage in differing degrees of self-enhancement, which is to say, differing degrees of evaluating oneself in an overly positive way. And so we were really interested in whether liberals and conservatives have these differing styles of self-report that might contribute to the happiness gap that we observe between them.
1: Your first study looked at whether conservatives' subjective reports of greater happiness could be due to self-enhancing tendencies. What did you find?
3: Well, we conducted an online survey of over 1,400 participants, and we found that conservatives did report greater satisfaction with their lives, which replicates past research but we also had participants fill out a survey that measured self-enhancement or this tendency to judge oneself in an overly favorable way. And what's interesting is that this tendency wasn't only stronger among conservatives, but it also seemed to explain why conservatives reported greater happiness. So, in other words, their judgments about life satisfaction appeared to be an example of their tendency to evaluate themselves favorably. We argue that these self-reports might not reflect emotional experience as much as a style of self-assessment.
1: And in your other studies, you sought to distinguish between genuine and superficial presentations of happiness. You started by looking at emotional language and smiling behavior in members of the United States Congress. What did you find there, Sean?
3: Yeah, so we hypothesized that if conservatives reports of greater happiness were driven by this flattering style of self-assessment, that it might not be as reflective of emotional experience. So we attempted to measure happiness behaviorally in two ways when we looked at Congress. We analyze the emotional content of their language and also their smiling behavior in publicly available photographs. So we started by looking in the U.S. congressional record, we analyzed over 10 million words of text, and we found that liberal politicians more frequently used positive emotional language than conservatives. When we analyzed the photos of Congress members from the 113th Congress's congressional pictorial Directory. We found that liberal politicians smiled more intensely and more genuinely than conservative politicians.
1: Now, how do you measure smiling? Can you actually tell a genuine smile from a fake one?
3: Yes. So we use the facial action coding system, which is abbreviated FACTS, to code the presence and intensity of two action units that are associated with smiling. The first involves the muscles lifting the corner of the mouth, and the second action unit involves the muscles orbiting the eye that indicate genuine feelings of happiness. So genuine smiling typically involves action in both of these action units, whereas less genuine smiling... Which is also known as social or deceptive or standard smiling, typically only involves the muscles lifting the corners of the mouth.
1: And in another study, you analyzed LinkedIn photographs of people who work in ideologically liberal and conservative organizations like Planned Parenthood and the Family Research Council. What did you find there?
3: We fax-analyzed over 500 photos of people from these organizations that are associated with ideological values to see if the results that we found among politicians would generalize to the general public, and they did. So people at liberal organizations smiled more intensely overall than people affiliated with conservative organizations, but this was especially true in the muscles orbiting the eyes that indicate genuine expressions of happiness.
1: Interesting. And you also analyzed the emotional content of over 47,000 tweets from both conservative and liberal social media users. What did you glean from the Twitterverse, Sean?
3: We identified approximately 4,000 Twitter users who subscribed to either the Democratic or Republican Party's Twitter feeds. uh, And we found similar patterns of emotional expression that we found in the text we analyzed from the congressional record. So tweets from people who followed the Democratic Party were more likely to contain words associated with joviality and positive emotions, even happy emoticons, and they were less likely to contain negative emotion-related words. So this is very consistent with our findings from our other studies, but notably it's contrary to the pattern that's observed in self-reports where these self-enhancing influences presumably are driving higher reports of happiness among conservatives.
1: Now, what are the limitations of your study, Sean?
3: Yeah, although we did observe a pretty coherent story in our results across thousands of online survey takers and politicians and social media users, but these weren't representative samples, and we did limit our analysis to Americans. Also, it's worth noting that although conservatives' reports of happiness appear to be buffered by this self-enhancing style of self-report, It's really not clear if this is a good or a bad thing. And so we want to continue investigating whether reports of happiness that are bolstered by this self-enhancement motivation are more or less advantageous than other more so-called genuine reports of positive well-being.
1: Sean, in light of your study, can we really trust when anyone reports about their life satisfaction?
3: Sure. Although we did really emphasize the importance of behavioral measures, I do want to be clear that self-reports are extremely valuable to happiness research. If we want to know how happy a person or a group is, the most obvious thing to do is to ask them. Self-reports are the cornerstone of happiness research with good reason. They predict all kinds of important outcomes in life that are of interest to researchers, policymakers, and the general public. Our research shows that it's when you're relying on self-reports alone that can be problematic. And we advocate for using multiple methodologies, including behavioral analysis, to find converging patterns of evidence. I think the risk is especially pronounced when comparing non-randomized groups using self-reports alone, because we might inadvertently measure differences in self-assessment styles rather than differences in emotional experience.
1: Thanks so much for speaking with me, Sean.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Sean Wojcik and colleagues write about the relationship between political persuasion and happiness in this week's science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at tripleas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.
0: Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's AAAS.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.